Well, hello everyone and welcome back. This is our daily devotional for Thursday, February the 8th, 2024. And I hope that it finds all of you doing very well indeed as you make your way through this week and through the month of February. It's an honor to be with you and I'm excited as we continue along in our story as we make our way through the book of Acts. If this is your first time with us, we're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we find ourselves in Acts chapter 21. If you are a regular, if you've been with us the last few days, then you know that things have been building up. Ooh, things have been building up. We've been talking the last few days about this agony, this situation that Paul has faced. Because as we read from chapter 20, verse 22, Paul said, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. And we know that Paul is a conflicted man over this, not conflicted over whether or not he's going to go. He knows he's got to go. It's time to go, and he is going. He will not be stopped. But there is still this internal agony, and we only get little glimpses of this. Um, we find one of these in, in verse 12. This is after this interesting situation where Philip the evangelist has these four prophetess daughters, right? And uh, what did they say? We don't know exactly, but probably wasn't good by human reason and logic. We know that Agabus, this mysterious character, came down from Judea. Chapter 21, verse 11, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. We don't know exactly what's going to happen, but we've got all this building up to it. And we know that in terms of pain and suffering, human reason and logic, very difficult things are coming. And we know that Paul is conflicted over this. He, the, and we know this because we find out in verse 12, right? Luke, now Luke, eyewitness, right? He puts himself there. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? Y'all, it's not that Paul was conflicted. He's not a torn man or anything like that. We, we know this because he says right in the next line, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then we find out from verse 14, he would not be dissuaded. So Paul's ready to go. Like we talked about, he set his face toward Jerusalem, much the same as Jesus when Jesus made the turn at, at Caesarea Philippi. So that's not the issue, but we do see this internal thing going on with Paul where there is, uh, he's human, y'all, and, and where it's not fear, but at the same time, and it's not even reservation. It's just otherly. He is convicted. He knows as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is time for him to go. And when a minister knows it's time to go, he's got to go. And not only for himself, for the Ephesians sake here with Paul, they need him to go because that's what the Lord is calling him to do. But nevertheless, you find this thing going on and all this, this buildup where Paul is looking and he knows what the Holy Spirit has told him. He gets all of these prophecies. And where we come to today in chapter 21 of Acts, verse 17, well, what we come to today is him getting to Jerusalem. All of this that's been building and building. Well, we're there today. But what he finds initially, remember what he was told? 
He was told the Jews of Jerusalem are going to bind you and then, then hand you over to the Gentiles, all these different things. What he finds is interesting. We don't really know what's going on internally with Paul all the time. We get little glimpses of it, right? But I can't help but wonder if what actually happened is, is not what he was expecting, what he finds out. Have you ever been in that situation? Think about that. Let me pray and we'll come back to that thought because we need help. Let's go to the Lord. Our Father, please be with us now. I've already started digging into this passage, but please bless us by your Holy Spirit. Turn the lights on so that we can see as we come to your word. Uh, we're not going to see without your help. We're not going to understand how this applies to us. So please work in our hearts. Give us grateful hearts. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I asked a question right before I prayed. Have you ever been in one of those situations where you have this thing that's looming or this thing that's building and, 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 and there's agony going up to it? Paul uses the term heartbroken here. All of these different things are happening. And then when it gets there, it's not what you thought it would be. I don't know for certain what Paul necessarily thought it was going to be. But what we find when Paul gets to Jerusalem Oh, it's fascinating. We don't find the Roman emperor there and his legions ready to arrest Paul. You know, we don't go straight to imprisonment and beatings and all of these different things. No. We find out that he faces problems. Oh, yes, without a doubt. There's people that have serious problems with Paul. But it's not the Romans. And it's not even the unbelieving Jews. Who is it? Surprisingly enough, it's those that count themselves as brothers that have a real problem with Paul's ministry. What am I talking about? Well, Acts chapter 21, verse 17 says, when we arrived at Jerusalem, and again, side note, this is not a story that's been transmitted down the line. It's not a game of telephone. Luke is an eyewitness. He's talking about that, okay? He is an eyewitness to what is taking place here. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. Who are the brothers? Well, he's talking about Jewish Christians there, brothers in Christ. The next day, verse 18, the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, time out. What is going on here? Who who are the brothers, right? And 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 and, and the elders, right? Y'all remember, go back to Acts chapter twelve. Paul and Barnabas went around and helped churches elect elders, but you got to go back way further than that. You got to go all the way back to like Deuteronomy to see that God's church has always been led by elders. I mean, it's 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 fascinating in our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith. The proof text for having elders is not Acts chapter twelve or chapter fifteen. The the proof text actually goes all the way back to the Old Testament because the church was always run by the elders. It's Presbyterian from the beginning, y'all. And I know that you're not necessarily one. I respect that. I calls them like I sees them, right? You know. Anyway. All of that being said, so that's who comes. It's the leaders of the church, the ones with the spiritual oversight of the church. And then James. Well, who is James? 
Well, y'all, you have to do a little bit of digging and you have to go elsewhere, but the James that is here is the same James that we found all the way back when we were dealing with the church in Jerusalem, the council of Jerusalem. It's also the same James that's talked about in Galatians where certain men who came from James showed up and started teaching that you have to follow the law of Moses to be a follower of Christ, right? This is James referred to as James the Lesser, right? This is James, also referred to as James, the brother of the Lord, okay? So that's who this is. Also James who wrote, that's right, the epistle of James, okay? that That's who he's dealing with here. Paul gets there and that's who they find. And what does he do? Well, we read it, verse 19, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Now, we got to read between the lines of this because for us here, that's one sentence. Y'all, think about the places that he's been. Think about all the people that have come to know Jesus Christ and trust in the Lord. Think about people being raised from the dead and demons being cast out. And, and you know, we get a sentence here. We get verse 19 and, and, and it's almost like a cut scene where it's like, and then Paul talked to them about fill in the blank. But y'all, the story that Paul told them, and it's more, it's not a story as in false, but, but the history that Paul gave them of what the Lord had been doing amongst the Gentiles, goodness, it's just, it's just amazing. It's just incredible what the Lord has done. All the things that Jesus talked about. Remember, back in, in John chapter 6, when Jesus talked about the fact that he's got to go. Yeah, Not the exact same as Paul saying he's got to go or when a minister says he's got to go, but Jesus said it's good for me. Uh, he talked about suffering and dying and, and then, then ascending back into heaven. He said, it's good for me that you go, so I can send you the help. And then in, in other places we see he says things like, you're going to do greater things than I did. And no, he's not talking about specific miracles. He's not talking about the signs. He's talking about the building of the kingdom. And y'all, everything that Jesus promised, it's coming true against all odds, against the intense immorality, the paganism, the, the multiple gods, the sexual wickedness and, and putrid nature of Rome and its empire, the Lord is saving people. It, it's unreal. But it's not unreal when you think about the God that we serve, that God can redeem any situation. Now, certainly we're talking about Paul basically giving a recap to James and the elders at the church in Jerusalem about the things that had taken place. But as a side note, and it's an important one, isn't there a, a, a wonderful message here for you and me today that we're not too far gone either? Just like the Roman Empire could be penetrated by the gospel, so can the United States of America. The Lord is still in the business of winning people for himself. And sometimes we can forget that because of what's going on here in these United States. But if you'll look at what's going on around the world, oh, it's amazing to see how the gospel is going forth, how, how witchcraft is being tossed aside and, and, and Christians in harm's way in China are committing to the Lord. I mean, it, I could talk about this over and over again, but the gospel is moving. We don't see it so much here, but even here it's happening. 
But look at how God is blessed. And if you're here, you'll know, look at how the Lord is blessed, even old Providence here in Spotswood. It's, a, it's remarkable what the Lord has done here and how faithful he's been. And that's the message that Paul, getting back to Acts chapter 21, that's the message that he brings to James and the elders there, the ones in charge of the church in Jerusalem. Now, at this point, you would think it would just be an absolute celebration. And indeed, there is some of that. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. But then they say something else. And y'all, this gets back to that idea of everything building up to this, but then things turn out maybe not like Paul thought they would. And indeed, there is trouble coming, but it's not from the Romans. It's not even from the Jews that denied Jesus. It's internal. And what's the source of it? Again, verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. They said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. And then they ask, what then shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what, so do what uh, we tell you. So, so, well, it goes on to give instructions, but so do what we tell you. But this is one of those places as a pastor, personally, I'm getting very personal here. It's one of those places as a pastor that I wish I had a glimpse into what Paul is thinking and feeling. Though I think it's a good thing that we don't because I only want that for selfish reasons because I would like my own feelings to be validated. It's over certain things. I mean, I think that's what it's about. It's not terribly important what Paul is thinking and feeling, but just think about it, y'all. He's told them that the unthinkable has happened. The unbelievable has taken place. That multitudes of Gentiles have turned to the Lord. These people that were living in wickedness They've turned to Jesus. And I'm not faulting James for this because, again, they praise God. The beginning of verse 20 is true. When they heard this, they praised God. But then what did they say? They said, well, here's the thing. And y'all, you want to kill a pastor? That's a great way to do it. You know, <laughs> have something to celebrate and say, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Yeah, that's, that's good. Hey, we're, it's great. But here's the thing. Here's the real problem. And what do they tell them the real problem is? Well, they say the real problem is thousands of Jews have come to know the Lord. And something is betrayed there. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. We can't look into everyone's heart. But it says that they are zealous for the law at the end of verse 20. Now, if we didn't have the rest of the scriptures, we could say, well, that's good. They want to do what God tells them to do and follow the law. Yeah, but there's two problems. Number one, they're zealous for the law, and this is not just talking about the moral law. We know that because they talked about in verse 21 about the danger of not circumcising children and all that kind of stuff. So we know that they're still zealous for the ceremonial law, but also we know this is a problem. There's really three reasons. We know this is a problem Second, because we have the rest of the books of the New Testament. 
In fact, there's an entire book of the Bible, Galatians, that is dedicated to certain men who came from James that came to the churches of Galatia. The Gentiles of Galatia that Paul just told them about, they come from James, which means they came out of Jerusalem. We don't, I'm not saying that James sent them on a hit mission or anything like that, but these men came out of Jerusalem and they started teaching, hey, great, you want to be a Christian? Fabulous, but you got to be a Jew first you got to follow the dietary laws. You got to follow the feast. You got to follow uh, certainly the laws of circumcision, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and that's a major issue. It doesn't correspond, as we're going to see in a moment, it doesn't correspond with this issue being dealt with back in Acts chapter 12. We know this has already been happening. And the church dealt with it. All the elders came from all the churches for that first Presbytery meeting in Acts chapter 15. And they decided that they weren't going to place that burden on, on Gentile Christians. They didn't grow up in that. that and, and, and there's no requirement in the law for them to circumcise their children and to avoid certain meats and all these different things. So they weren't going to do that to them. And yet, here we are. And it's not just Galatians, y'all, Philippians. If you've been here on Sunday mornings, you know that um, in Philippians, we dealt with Paul giving warnings about a certain group that he referred to as the mutilators of the flesh. Um, they were these men that required uh, Gentile Christian men to be circumcised and, and that sort of thing. And they went above and beyond God's word. And Paul dealt with that very firmly. In Galatians, he deals with it really, really firmly. But nevertheless... Those are two big ones, and there's a third big problem. And y'all, this is more of an overarching thing. They're zealous for the law, but are they zealous for the Lord? The two are not mutually exclusive. You know, to, to say, I have been redeemed by Christ, and therefore I want to live my life by following his example. That's what we all ought to do. It should be our desire to keep God's law for many reasons. One is because it's good for you to do it. God's law is not arbitrary. He tells you to do what he tells you to do because he knows what's good for you. He knows it's not good living a lie. He knows that it destroys you if you covet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We go down the list. I've done this before. That's one reason, but also another reason we follow the law is because we've been saved. Jesus died to pay for our sins. And we don't want to heap upon that. And, and furthermore, it's a, it's a matter of gratitude. It, we do what we do for Jesus, not because we've got to, but because we get to. And yet, what we really see depicted here is this zealotry for the law itself. Now, um, we're running out of time, so I'm not going to get to it today. They have a remedy for this. And in the remedy, there is a lesson for us too. But I think a good place to stop today um, we've had some points of application, but I've got a big one. These people are zealous for the law. They are so zealous for the law that they hear about these incredible things taking place amongst the Gentiles. All they hear is that Paul is teaching them to be lawbreakers. They don't care about Moses. You know, that terminology that is used there, verse 21, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses. They're not just zealous for the law, they're zealous from Moses himself. The same terminology is kind of used in the book of Hebrews when the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to Moses, right? It's this, it's almost this idolatry of Moses. And, and it's nothing wrong with Moses. 
right? In Hebrews, we find out that he's the most faithful servant in all of God's house. Here's your Jeopardy question, right? Of all of God's servants, he's the most faithful, but Jesus is the son that's over the house. Nevertheless, you see what they're passionate about. What are you passionate about? Really, what are you passionate about? What are you zealous for? Because you see what Paul is zealous for, he's a flat out zealot for the kingdom of God. Paul is a man of extremes in so many ways. When we find him, what is he? He's a zealot against the Lord. Oh, he wants to destroy Christianity. He's, he's the ISIS of his day. He's the terror in, in the night going to arrest Christians. He even gets the blessing of the priest, right? And yet with Jesus, he's a zealot for the kingdom of God. And he ain't stopping. He is going. And y'all, it is my desire as a pastor to be the same way. Um, I have a problem with extremes. I'm I'm that guy, right? And no, I don't mean, you know, monster energy drink, extreme. Let's go punch some drywall. I mean, in terms of my own personality, I've, I've talked about this before. I, I sold it by God's grace. But when I bought a motorcycle, I didn't just get any motorcycle. I got a motorcycle with the biggest motor that's ever been put on a motorcycle, right? I mean, that's, and Amanda, God bless that woman. Her birthday, I think I told you, is in a couple of weeks, 13 days now. But nevertheless, she has to put up with so much because I am a man of extremes. It's my desire that the Lord would use that to change me into a man of extremes for the kingdom because that's what he's done for Paul. And yet, who's he dealing with? He's dealing with people that are zealous. They're zealots, but they're zealots for the law. What's your passion? What is that thing that you are really excited about? And before you fill in the blank with something, you know what you're really excited about and what you really believe is affected in what you do, how you live, what's important to you. And I say this with a heavy heart, knowing that my priorities have been off. What's important to you is reflected in your checkbook, what you spend, why you spend it. I mean, all of these things are the case. I think this is one of those other passages that props a mirror up in front of us and is a call to examine ourselves. Because y'all, while we're talking about something that took place 2,000 years ago, if you don't think the same kind of thing goes on today, whoo, boy. Do I have news for you? Let me just tell you, you know, that that's one of the double-edged, uh, that, that's why church growth is a double-edged thing. You know, when you bring in a bunch of new people into a church, that church has to decide, are they going to embrace those people um, and give them a seat at the table? Or are they going to try to preserve things? I mean, you know, uh, there's that side of things. There's, there's the theologically correct out there that when wonderful things are happening for the kingdom, they just focus on the minute details. You know, we're, we're far more Jewish than we think sometimes. We get bogged down in things that do not matter. Most of it revolves around turf, okay? What we think is ours, what we think is important, when instead we ought to be sold out for Jesus completely and totally. Why? Well, we should give all of ourselves to Jesus. Didn't he give all of himself for you, Christian? Indeed, he did. So let's do some self-evaluation and let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for this time that you have given to us, and I praise you for it. Work in our hearts that we really would examine ourselves and what's really important to us. Convict us, Father, that we would seek your face, that the kingdom, as it was with your son, so let it be with us, that the kingdom would be our primary concern. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to thank you all for being a part of this time. Lord willing, we will be back. Well, not tomorrow morning because I don't do these on Friday, but Monday morning, we'll be back at 6 a.m. Also Sunday morning, we're still doing the two services, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. 9 a.m. has our children's things attached to it, nursery, children's church, all those things. 11 a.m. is a more truncated service without the choir, uh, but absolutely love to have you at either one. I stream the nine o'clock service live. The sermon's better at the 11 o'clock service and, you know, I feel better about it anyway, but that's because I preached it another time. But nevertheless, it, it's all good. We would love to have you if you are local. Um, if not, and you need to be a part uh, of a church online, join us. But if you can, you should be in person at a Bible-believing church that you're committed to. I won't preach anymore or go to Medlin anymore. Take care.